Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're going to be digging into some uncomfortable truths. I got the inspiration for this episode while watching The Greatest Showman the other night, which is, if you are unaware, a musical based very, very loosely on the life and adventures of P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey's Circus. Um, Now, in the film, he is shown as this kind of outsider who really embraces people who are different and helps them find a place where they can feel like they're at home. It's it's very heartwarming. It's a it's a really well-made film. Um Hugh Jackman who by all accounts is just a wonderful human being anyway, um kind of steals your heart with it. Uh and and it's just it's a really good film. I highly recommend it. However, that being said, it definitely does not paint an accurate portrait of who P.T. Barnum was. Um, You know, I had heard some other podcasts about him in the past. Uh, I believe he's been covered by both the dollop and Stuff You Missed in History class. There's some very interesting and disturbing things uh, about him. So, If you love that movie or you want to love that movie, um, maybe skip today's episode. I also had run across an article the other day about Mark Twain, another person who I greatly admire, uh, and, and also found that one kind of disturbing, but strangely fascinating, so I wanted to share that as well. So we'll start with an article by Jackie Mansky for the Smithsonian Mag called P.T. Barnum Isn't the Hero the Greatest Showman Wants You to Think. Some five decades into his life, Phineas Taylor Barnum from Bethel, Connecticut, had remade himself from his humble beginnings as an impoverished country boy into a showman. Indeed, the greatest showman, as the new musical about his life would say, of his generation. Thanks to a combination of brilliant marketing tactics and less-than-upstanding business practices, Barnum had truly arrived, and with his book Humbugs of the World in 1865, Barnum wanted to inform you, his audience, that he hadn't achieved his rags-to-riches success story by scamming the public. Barnum's career trafficked in curiosities, which he served up to a public hungry for such entertainment, regardless of how factual or ethical such displays were. His legacy in show business stretched from the American Museum to P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome, the predecessor of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, near the end of his life. Each were full of bigger-than-life ideas marketed to an audience interested in mass and often crass entertainment. As it was generally understood, Barnum wrote in the book, the term humbug consists in putting on glittering appearances, outside show, novel expedients by which to suddenly arrest public attention and attract the public eye and ear. And Barnum wanted to make it clear such a practice was justified. 
There are various trades and occupations which need only notoriety to ensure success, he claimed, concluding no harm, no foul, so long as, at the end of the day, customers felt like they got their money's worth. Growing up in the antebellum north, Barnum took his first real dip into showmanship at age 25 when he purchased the right to rent an aged black woman by the name of Joyce Heth, whom an acquaintance was trumpeting around Philadelphia as the 161-year-old former nurse of George Washington. By this time, Barnum had tried working as a lottery manager, a shopkeeper, and newspaper editor. He was living in New York City, employed at a boarding home and in a grocery store, and was hungry for a money-making gimmick. I had long fancied that I could succeed if I could only get hold of a public exhibition, he reflected about his life at the time in his 1855 autobiography, The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. With Heth, he saw an opportunity to strike it rich. Though slavery was outlawed in Pennsylvania and New York at the time, a loophole allowed him to lease her for a year for $1,000, borrowing $500 to complete the sale. In a research paper on Barnum and his legacy misrepresenting African peoples, Berth Lindfors, Professor Emeritus at University of Texas at Austin, aptly sums up significance of that dark transaction as the launching point of Barnum the Showman, someone who began his career in show business by going into debt to buy a superannuated goodness gracious, a superannuated female slave who turned out to be a fraud. It's a story that The Greatest Showman, which presents Barnum as a smooth-talking, Harold Hill-type, lovable con, doesn't address. Hugh Jackman's Barnum would never be a person comfortable purchasing an enslaved woman to turn a tidy profit. Rewrite the stars indeed, to quote a song from the new movie. As Benjamin Rice, professor and chair of English at Emory University and author of The Showman and the Slave of Barnum, explains in an interview with Smithsonian.com, Barnum's legacy has become a sort of cultural touchstone. The story of his life that we choose to tell is in part the story that we choose to tell about American culture, he says. We can choose to erase things or dance around touchy subjects and present a kind of feel-good story, or we can use it as an opportunity to look at very complex and troubling histories that our culture has been grappling with for centuries. That begins with Heth, Barnum's first big break. It was while on tour with her when he observed a public hungry for spectacle. Human curiosities, or lusus naturae, freaks of nature, were among the most popular traveling entertainments of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Rice explains in his book, but but by the time Barnum went on tour with Heth, there was a shift. By the 1830s, the display of grotesquely embodied human forms was for some populist carnivalesque entertainment and for others an offense to genteel sensibilities, Rice writes. So, while the Jacksonian press in New York, the vanguard of mass culture, covered Heth's shows breathlessly, he found while following Barnum's paper trail that the more old-fashioned New England press bristled at the display. 
As the newspaper The Courier wrote cuttingly, Those who imagine they can contemplate with delight a breathing skeleton subjected to the same sort of discipline that is sometimes exercised in a menagerie to induce the inferior animals to play unnatural pranks for the amusement of barren spectators will find food to their taste by visiting Joyce Heth. Still, with Heth, Barnum proved himself capable of being nimble enough to dip and swerve, playing up different stories of her to appeal to different audiences across the Northeast. Heth, of course, was not alive in George Washington's time. Whether Barnum believed the fable, frankly, doesn't really matter. While he later claimed he did, he wasn't above making up his own myths about Heth to attract people to see her. He once planted a story that claimed the enslaved woman wasn't even a person at all. What purports to be a remarkably old woman is simply a curiously constructed automaton, he wrote. When she died in February 1836, rather than let her go in peace, Barnum had one more act up his sleeve. He drummed up a final public spectacle, hosting a live autopsy in a New York saloon. There, 1,500 spectators paid 50 cents to see the dead woman cut up, revealing that she was likely half her purported age. After Heth, Barnum found several other acts to tour, notably the coup of getting the world-famous Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, to travel across the Atlantic to make her critically and popularly acclaimed American debut with him, until he became the proprietor of the American Museum in December 1841 in New York. At the American Museum, more than 4,000 visitors poured per day to browse some 850,000 interesting curiosities at the price of 25 cents a trip. The fake and the real commingled in the space with imported exotic live animals mixing alongside hoaxes like the so-called Fiji mermaid, a preserved monkey's head sewn onto the preserved tail of a fish. Most uncomfortably in the museum, Barnum continued to present freakishness in the form of living curiosities. One of the most popular displays featured a man billed as a creature found in the wilds of Africa, supposed to be a mixture of the wild native African and the orangutan, a kind of man-monkey. The offensive poster concluded, For want of a positive name, the creature was called, What is it? In truth, What is it? was an African-American man named William Henry Johnson. Before coming to the show, he served as a cook for another showman in Barnum's Connecticut hometown. Similar racial othering permeated the rest of Barnum's living curiosities, from the Aztec children who were actually from El Salvador, to the real but exoticized Siamese twins, Chang and Hang. As James W. Cook, professor of history and American studies at the University of Michigan, argues in The Art of Deception, playing with fraud in the age of Barnum, it was because of the bipartisan mass audience he built through such displays, which preyed on ideas of African inferiority and racial othering, that Barnum then decided to throw his hat into the political ring. During his successful run for the Connecticut General Assembly in 1865, something changed, however. 
Suddenly, Cook writes, Barnum began to express a novel sympathy and regret about the subjugation of African Americans, or at least to approach civil rights matters at the end of the Civil War with a new, somewhat softer vision of racial paternalism. During a failed run for Congress, he even confessed during a campaign speech that while living in the South, he had owned slaves himself, actions he since regretted. I did more, he said. I whipped my slaves. I ought to have been whipped a thousand times for this myself. But by then, I was a Democrat. One of those nondescript Democrats who are northern men with southern principles. It's a powerful speech, but how much of his remorse was spin is hard to say. With Barnum, you never know if that's part of the act or the contrition was genuine, says Rice. People change, and it's possible he really did feel this, although throughout his career as a showman, there were many episodes of exhibiting non-white people in degrading ways. With Heth, at least, as Rice says, he clearly viewed her as an opportunity and a piece of property at the beginning, something he bragged about constantly early in his career. But after he gained growing respectability following the Civil War, the story he so proudly boasted about changed. That's because, when you break it down, as Rice says, he owned this woman, worked her for 10 to 12 hours a day near the end of her life, worked her to death, and then exploited her after death. This history becomes suddenly an unsavory chapter for Barnum, and so, Rice says, there's a shift in how he relays the story. He observes that his narration gets shorter and shorter, more and more apologetic to the end. Barnum's later retelling rewrites history, as Rice says, it makes it seem like he didn't quite know what he was doing and this was just a little blip on his road to greatness. In fact, this was the thing that started his career. Today, Barnum and his career arguably serve as a Warshat test for where we are and what kind of humbug tale we are willing to be sold. But if you're looking clear-eyed at Barnum, an undeniable fact of his biography is his role marketing racism to the masses. He had these new ways of making racism seem fun and for people to engage in activities that degraded a racially subjected person in ways that were intimate and funny and surprising and novel, says Rice. That's part of his legacy. That's part of what he left us, just as he also left us some really great jokes and circus acts and this kind of charming, wise-cracking America's uncle reputation. This is equally part of his legacy. Rather than explore such dark notes, the greatest showman is more interested in spinning a pretty tale, a humbug, if you will, of a magnitude that Barnum himself would likely tip his hat to. But, as the late historian Daniel Borston put it in his critical text, The Image, Perhaps this revisionary storytelling shouldn't be a surprise to those paying attention. Contrary to popular belief, as Borston wrote, Barnum's great discovery was not how easy it was to deceive the public, but rather how much the public enjoyed being deceived. I still really enjoyed the movie and think it's worth checking out, but maybe don't (laughs) buy into the humbug that it is selling. And for some more humbug, some uh, uncomfortable truths, Mark Twain's disturbing passion for collecting young girls 
written by Linda Simon for the Paris Review. In 1905, when 70-year-old Mark Twain began to collect a bevy of adolescent girls whom he called his angelfish, he defended his predilection by insisting that he longed for grandchildren. His own daughters were grown, his favorite Susie was dead by then, and he was lonely. But grandfathers can have grandsons as well as granddaughters, and Twain, the creator of one of literature's most famous adolescents, surely celebrated boy's cheeky energy. There was more then to his strange sorority than an elderly man's yearning for grandchildren, more even than nostalgia for his daughter's childhoods. As for me, Twain wrote at the age of 73, I collect pets, young girls, girls from 10 to 16 years old, girls who are pretty and sweet and naive and innocent, dear young creatures to whom life is a perfect joy and to whom it has brought no wounds, no bitterness, and few tears. Innocent they were, but not as naive as he seemed to think. Certainly they knew that he was a celebrity. That was how it started when 15-year-old Gertrude Natkin saw him leaving Carnegie Hall on December 27, 1905 after a matinee song recital by the German soprano Madame Johanna Gatsky. Twain, after all, was instantly recognizable even before he decided to wear only white. He noticed her, to be sure, saw that she wanted to speak to him, introduced himself, and shook her hand. The next day, she wrote to thank him. I am very glad I can go up and speak to you now, as I think we know each other. Describing herself as his obedient child, she ended her note, I am the little girl who loves you. He responded immediately, calling himself Gertrude's oldest and latest conquest. Their correspondence was playfully flirtatious. He called her his little witch, she called him darling, he sent her a copy of his favorite book, the writings of a bewitching little scamp named Marjorie, who had died just short of her ninth birthday in Scotland in 1811. I have adored Marjorie for six and thirty years, he confessed in an essay. The child, who confided startlingly sophisticated remarks about books, history, and religion in her journal, seemed to him made out of thunderstorms and sunshine. How impulsive she was, how sudden, how tempestuous, how tender, how loving, how sweet, how loyal, how rebellious, how innocently bad, how natively good, he exclaimed. May I be your little Marjorie? Gertrude asked coyly. That is how Twain addressed her in letters filled with what the two called blots or kisses until 1906 when he was taken aback by her turning 16. I am almost afraid to send a blot, but I venture it. Bless your heart, it comes within an ace of being improper. Now back you go to 14, then there's no impriety. impropriety. Their correspondence ended, and Twain set his sights on younger girls. Buoyed by Gertrude's effusive declarations of love, Twain discovered that it was easy to find other young admirers, primarily from among his fellow passengers on holiday trips to Bermuda. By 1908, he had collected ten schoolgirls, dubbed them his angelfish, and awarded them membership in his aquarium, aquarium club. In Bermuda, he had special shimmering enamel lapel pins designed for them to wear on their left breast above the heart. In the spring and summer of 1908, one biographer notes, Twain's letters to his angelfish comprised more than half of his correspondence, 
one letter sent or received every day. Many continued invi- many contained invitations to the girls to visit him in his palatial house in Reading, Connecticut, which he named Innocence at Home. I have built this house largely, indeed almost chiefly, for the comfort and accommodation of the aquarium, Twain announced in a mock serious document that he sent to his angelfish containing the rules and regulations of the club. The lair of the angelfish was his billiard room. Twain recounted in an autobiographical entry how he found his jewels. One morning in Bermuda, as he walked into the breakfast room, the first object I saw in that spacious and far-reaching place was a little girl seated solitary at a table for two. I bent down over her and patted her cheek and said affectionately and with compassion, Why, you dear little rascal, do you have to eat your breakfast all by yourself in this desolate way? They arranged to meet after breakfast and, he reported, were close comrades, inseparables, in fact, for eight days. A friend later told him that the 12-year-old girl had asked if he was married, and when learning that he was not, his wife had died, said, If I were his wife, I would never leave his side for a moment. I would stay by him and watch him and take care of him all the time. Twain attributed the remark to the girl's mother instinct and willingly submitted, characterizing himself as a degraded and willing slave. In 1907, on board a ship, taking him to England, where he would receive an honorary degree from Oxford, Twain found the 16-year-old Francis Nunnally, with whom he said he grew quite confidential, and who became, however briefly, an angelfish. On the return trip, he befriended the 9-year-old Dorothy Quick, who, a newspaper reporter noted, guarded him closely during the voyage, sitting on his lap, with her head leaning against his shoulder. He called her Mon Ami another reporter wrote, and stood on deck with his arm thrown paternally around the child's shoulder, at one point giving her a fond little hug. Twain's collection of girls was well known, inspiring some adult women to press for membership. One came for dinner, dressed for 12 years, and had pink ribbons at the back of her neck and looked about 14 years old. Impressed, Twain gave her an angelfish pin. There's lots of lady candidates, he wrote to a young angelfish, but I guess we won't let any more in, unless perhaps Billy Burke. The vivacious and youthful comedian, 23 at the time, was a favorite actress of Twain's. Billy is as good as she is pretty, he remarked to an angelfish after dining with Burke and a few other Broadway performers. He had met her after a performance of My Wife, a play whose May to December theme fitted his fantasies, and Burke often visited him at his Manhattan townhouse whenever she was working in the Northeast. During the years that Twain collected his angelfish, he spurned the companionship of his real daughter Jean, who had been living in medical institutions where her epilepsy could be monitored. In the summer of 1908, Twain's secretary and assistant, Isabel Leon, the lioness he called her and she called him King, arranged for Jean to live in Gloucester, Massachusetts. She stayed there briefly and happily until she left the country with friends. In 1909, Jean returned to Twain's home, where she drowned in a bathtub having suffered a seizure. By the time Jean died, Twain's blatant cavorting with Angelfish had been thwarted by his other daughter, Clara. In the summer of 1908, Clara returned from a European concert tour and was appalled by her father's new interest. Rechristening the Reading House Stormfield, she put an end to the Angelfish's visits. 
The house had lost its innocence, and by that winter, Twain began to complain irritably about his declining health and spirits. An odd resurfacing of the angelfish obsession occurred in 1910, just weeks before his death in letters and notebook entries regarding the 15-year-old Helen Allen, a moody young woman who fascinated him. She is bright, smart, alive, energetic, determined, high-tempered, intense, he wrote. But she was also disappointing, preferring romance literature to poetry and responding to Twain's witticisms and attempts at banter with mute indifference. More disappointing still, she had a boyfriend, and Twain was jealous. He cautioned Helen to preserve her innocence. He wanted the younger man out of the way. Twain's obsession with adolescent girls can be explained in part by his exalting of his own teenage years, years of daring and adventure. His wife, after all, had nicknamed him Youth, and his most memorable fictional characters, of course, are the adolescent Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. Twain focused not on young boys, though, but sexually innocent girls from ages 10 to 16 with undeveloped boyish bodies and with whom he carried out titillating flirtations. Photographs of Twain and his angelfish show them standing or sitting close to him, their bodies touching his with his arms around their shoulders or waists. They might be his daughters, or they might be his lovers. His notes about Helen Allen reveal a yearning to be more than protector, mentor, and grandfather. Twain regretted aging, claiming the vigor of a much younger man. At two o'clock in the morning, I feel old and sinful, he remarked. But at eight o'clock, when I am shaving, I feel young and ready to hunt trouble, as though I were not over 25 years old. The quintessential adolescent of the time, who left gloriously onto the, London, onto the London stage in 1904 and Broadway in 1905, was Peter Pan, the boy who refused to grow up. Like Mark Twain's Huck Finn, Peter flew to uncharted territory rather than submit to becoming civilized by his family. Mark Twain praised the play with his customary enthusiasm, gushing that all the implacable rules of the drama are violated, yet the result is a play which is without a defect. It is a fairy play. There isn't a thing in it which could ever happen in real life. That is as it should be. It is consistently beautiful, sweet, clean, fascinating, satisfying, charming, and impossible from beginning to end. It breaks all the rules of real-life drama, but preserves intact all the rules of fairyland, and the result is altogether contenting to the spirit. The longing of my heart, the 70-year-old Twain added, is a fairy portrait of myself. I want to be pretty. I want to eliminate facts and fill up the gap with charms. Twain saw in Peter the adolescent he so fervently wished to be eternally. That's pretty disturbing, but you know, not on a Woody Allen level, to be sure. Um, I'd be interested in learning more about some of these young ladies that he was interacting with, and especially Marjorie, who uh, he was so, whose writing he was so fascinated fascinated by. Uh, kind of reminds me of Barbara Newhall Follett, this kind of child po- prodigy with really great insight into different things that someone that young doesn't normally have. Um, 
Once again, thank you so much for listening to Blue Stocking. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. And as always, if you like the podcast, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. That's how we get the word out. Thanks again.